Think, debate, inspire. Debates on pressing global challenges. A podcast of the Robert Bosch Academy. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of our podcast series, Think, Debate, Inspire of the Robert Bosch Academy. My name is Pradnya and I'm a Senior Project Manager at the Robert Bosch Academy. And my name is Henry Altaka, Senior Vice President at the Bosch Foundation. Amy is uh, the CEO of N10 and currently a Richard von Weizsäcker Fellow in Berlin and just arrived a few weeks ago here in Berlin. And we are really looking forward to talk to you, Amy, during the podcast about your project. So welcome on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk. Let's start with the, with the macro from the bird's eye perspective. Okay. You have said that you want to work on what does an internet built on values of sovereignty, safety and freedom look like, uh, which is a bold broad kind of topic. Um, really? It seems so easy. Let's just do so that. Easy. Exactly. <laughs> so, so when the internet came to be, you know, for those mm -hmm. of us who remember, um, there was this great expectation of this kind of utopian uh, new form of communication with universal access to knowledge, with participatory governance, with, you know, complete democracy, et cetera, et cetera. And now we talk about, you know, internet trolls, biased <laughs> AI, uh, uh, what else out there, data protection issues, uh, all those kind of things. And so it seems like from one utopian dream, now we're talking about all the negative things. Mm -hmm. You have said that the idea of neutral technology is a myth, um, in, in quotation marks. Mm -hmm. So what, from that kind of big perspective, mm -hmm. is your um, take on, let's say, the last... 30 years or, or so, what impact the internet uh, and, and digital technology have had on the world? Is it, mm -hmm. is it more on the utopian side? Did it become better? Needs to become even more mm -hmm. better? Or did it make us um, worse off? I appreciate that you have seen my bet and uh, matched it with an equally easy to answer question. <laughs> um, but truly, you know, these are really big questions that I think importantly don't have only a single answer, you know. Um, so I'm just saying that at the start that this is like one of many things that could mm. be a response to that question. I think that a place to start in in responding is to say, just as technology can't be neutral, technology cannot be separate. We can't really say in the last 30 years has technology or in this case, you know, maybe we're saying the internet made the world better or, you know, net positive or, or net negative on the world because the internet is us. It, it, it is us putting that content in there. It is us creating those tools. You know, technology can't be created separate from the systems we're already a part of. And so, you know, in that same way, that like utopia of, of everyone could have knowledge and everyone could have uh, education and every, I think those ideals of, of what that, of what an, interconnected world could be still exist but the limitation was that we we were excited for and maybe believed in that utopia well well thinking that somehow the internet wouldn't have the challenges and 
problems of our governments <laughs> and our society that we have now, right? It wasn't a fix for any of those things. It was just a, a new place <laughs> for us to, to continue to grapple with them. Um, so I think it had, it, it had and has now the same hopes and potentials, but we have to really, I think, deal with how much we are hindered in reaching them by the same systems of power and oppression and capitalism and everything else that exists, even if we were talking about a different system, right, then and not the internet or not technology. Um, and that's a hard conversation because it's not like, okay, well, let's just backward plan a little bit and, and find the root. Like the, the root is this, like <laughs> the root is the world, you know, and, and really trying to uh, address a lot of things. But I also think that instead of being entirely overwhelming is also very hopeful because it means any work that we do to dismantle those systems in any other place will naturally help dismantle them in all the places, you know? Um, if maybe the place that we find forward motion in, in creating different and more equitable ways of sharing knowledge or creating content or telling our stories is the internet, it will help us do that work of finding more equitable ways, you know, in other systems too. So it isn't, it isn't bad that it's so interconnected, but it does mean, you know, it'll take all of us from all of those different places, doing all the work that we can in order for both the internet and the world and whatever government or companies or, you know, all these other things that we interact with. Yeah. So maybe a really big <laughs> answer no. to the really big question, but. Yeah. I mean, it, it gets philosophical when one talks about those things. I mean, I, I think I, I sometimes wonder uh, thinking uh, on this macro level, You know, 500 years ago when Gutenberg invented the book press, right? Nowadays, you would say this liberated humanity, right? All right. of a sudden, um, all these positive changes, but it changed the world fundamentally. Yes. At the end, probably, you know, the fall of aristocracy is, you know, attributed to it. So there might have been people in those 500 years who have said, it, you know, the downfall began with Gutenberg. Now we yeah. say, the, you know, the, the liberation began with Gutenberg. Right. So maybe in 500 years, um, uh, people will reinterpret whatever fundamental changes are happening uh, right. in their perspective. Right. Well, and I also think that there's, uh, you know, a similar comparison we can make with the Internet where some people experienced what was created 500 years ago at that time as a single pamphlet that they received. Mm. They did not experience it as they had a press in their home, no. right? And so we have that now with the internet. There are people who experience the internet as a Facebook app on their phone. Mm -hmm. And there are people who experience the internet by creating Wikipedia pages, mm -hmm. right? So there's there's still a lot of different perspectives on what the what the what the revolution was that was created there um and i think that is similar with the internet and over time we'll be able to see oh yes here are those people that just received the pamphlets and here are the people who got a press and you know what what were institutions doing and how who else was supporting that and oh. yeah I have one technical uh, okay. question you use one term uh, non-profit technology in your mm -hmm. work uh 
And uh, we have briefly talked in a, in a previous conversation about this, how I don't understand it very well. Um, uh, because I, I was saying, well, but you know, if you use MS Word, it doesn't matter whether you're non-profit or whether you're profit or government. Sure. Um, and maybe you could say a little bit on, on, on what this term means and, mm -hmm. and why it is so important mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and why it's so maybe challenging or, uh, or yeah. innovative for old farts like me to understand. <laughs> <laughs> um. If you're an old fart, we have a <laughs> we have a lot of other problems. Um, nonprofit technology is not really a you know sp specifically defined term, and that like there's encyclopedia entries on it or anything like that. But in work and communities that I do, nonprofit technology is is used as a term to say the application of any type of technology to a nonprofit's mission, to the work of social change, of social service, right? Um, and I think it's, even if it's lowercase, you know, and, and not capitals, not a like uh, registered term, I think it's important to name why we're using the technology so that we don't fall into the trap of using technology for technology's sake. Like, oh, it's there. I might as well use it. If you don't have a purpose for it, you don't need to be using it. But also it has an important purpose. It's supposed to be supporting your mission. So the fact that there's so little technology products and services out there actually that were made to help you with your mission is, is a big part of our work. And, and I think helps illuminate that issue by giving it a name and saying, you know, nonprofits are trying to use technology to do their work. They should have the technologies that are, that are fit for purpose for that. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's a very important um, starting point because for a lot of people who are not a part of this conversation you know, on a day-to-day -day basis, it sounds a very uh, normatively heavy yeah. word without actually understanding what one expects when you use that word. So uh, thank you for explaining that. So going by what you said, what for someone who's not a part of those discussions, the work of nonprofit organizations is to address social inequalities, help people um, come uh, deal with different challenges on a day-to-day -day basis and all of that. Whereas the, the business model of technology companies, more than often, if not every time, but more than often on a, on a generic scale, is very profit-oriented. It's a very capitalist way of operating things. Mm -hmm. So um, where do you see on the broad scheme of things uh, – going by your work and, and the time that you've spent working mm -hmm. on this, do you see a point of conversions? Because it would also be unfair for people who work in technology for us to assume that they don't care about social mm -hmm. inequalities. They do. Mm -hmm. It's more than often that, you know, they, they, they don't find an access point about where can I start mm -hmm. contributing in a small way? So maybe I know it's it's a lot of small questions, but maybe uh, you have a it's few a lot thoughts of big on questions. <laughs> change, but let's start small. Change capitalism, you know that's <laughs> that's small. We'll start there. But you know, I do think part of it is changing the incentives for technology to be developed for community work, for nonprofit work, for social change work, um, and that you know, you can follow that thread back to who's funding technology and why are they funding it? And can we diversify those funders so that, you know, philanthropy better sees itself as a, as a 
funder for the technology for the sector that enables the work that they are otherwise funding. Hmm. You know, like um, I'm not saying that's the only answer, but just as an example of of how to pull those threads and see see places that we can make change very directly, you know, into that system. Um, as far as how do we address that challenge that I do think is very real of an individual person is is not their company. An individual person inside of a technology company isn't the one necessarily saying, oh, th th this is who we're serving and this is who, you know, we should build for. I do think that there are, though, things that you can do no matter where you are, right? Like, that's kind of what I was saying earlier to, to Henry's question. Like, no matter who you are, there is something you can do from where you sit with what you have, with the power that you have. Mm. And um, I think people inside technology companies have such an important opportunity to shift influence, even just by saying in a meeting, have we talked to those customers? Mm. Do we know that we have nonprofit clients using our tool that wasn't built for nonprofits? Could we bring them in and, and hear from them? Right? Even if, if all you're doing is asking the question, it's already creating, you know, some dissonance to say, actually, maybe this isn't right. And that's not like the only thing that will solve all of this. But I think it's important to name that it's not, let's find the tech CEOs and, mm. and convince them that even small, us, yes, small changes kind of lead to a big one. Yes. But let me jump in on, yes, on what yes, you yes, just yes. spoke about the incentive of it. Yeah. So a lot of it, it's become common practice for a lot of um, big firms to, to use Terms like responsible tech, mm. um, and you one can call it whatever one wants. It can be greenwashing, it can be equity washing. You know, you're yeah. just trying to fit in yeah. for all the wrong reasons. Right. Um, but at the same time, for someone who again is not familiar with the depths of the work that you're doing, yeah. um, where is the start starting point for them to be able to differentiate? right away between responsible tech, whatever that is, yeah. and non-profit tech. Because, you know, for, for a layman, it all sounds like very, very heavy words. And yeah. they're doing some good. I, I can't explain it, but they're oh, doing right. something. So, yes. I mean, I think that's what they want you to think. <laughs> yeah, but that's why <laughs> I'm asking say, this question. <laughs> when they say responsible tech, I think, you know, part of tech or digital or internet literacy that all of us have to always be kind of strengthening in ourselves is the ability to ask why. Mm. Who is served by me believing that that's responsible technology? Mm. Who benefits from them labeling it this way? Mm. Is it me? No. Mm. It's not me as mm. the user, right? So as we get better about asking those questions, I mean, one benefit is we don't fall for disinformation campaigns because we're very good at questioning, you know, what, what we're hearing and, and reading. But it also helps us say, actually, I don't care if you call it responsible tech or, or anything else. If you can't tell me how it's responsible, hmm. it doesn't matter that you called it So that, transparency right? is a key aspect. Transparency is really important. But I also think there's a big piece of this that, that we talk about a lot, which is accountability. Mm -hmm. So there are many examples we could find of companies being transparent, but not having any accountability, right? And I think if we focus on the accountability part, it naturally 
includes transparency, responsibility, Mm. communications, you know, all those other pieces. And so that's the place that we really focus in our conversations with technology companies, whether they believe themselves to be serving the nonprofit sector or not, is how how are actual users, how are actual communities, how are actual nonprofits able to bring you to account, you know, how can they be in relationship with you to say, this isn't meeting our needs, or Mm. we would love to give you money and be clients or, or users or customers if you would only build for us. Like, really, what is the mechanism for that? And it, it is, I think, a conversation that then includes incentives, right? Um, It includes uh, opportunities to say, well, who's funding this? How are we in relationship with them? Um, It it kind of brings all the other pieces of the technology development life cycle into it by asking that question and really expecting that Mm. there's accountability. Mm. Can I squeeze in a quick question? Um, As someone who has not yet ready to accept that capitalism is dead completely. <laughs> <laughs> so so the, the developing innovative useful technology is very expensive. Yes. And the reason why it worked so well in companies like Google and others is because they had this direct feedback loop with their customers, right? What doesn't work, died, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and constantly gets updated. And you, How does this work if this kind of capitalist incentive uh, mm-hmm. on getting customers and clients isn't there anymore in that direct way. Well, I also think it's important to name that Google or Microsoft, you know, big technology companies were able to have that feedback loop because they were, that feedback was actually your data. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you yeah. know, they you weren't paid, in relationship oh, um, with customers. Um, they were just seeing, oh, a lot of people are doing this, it looks, you know, I can see in the log that this keeps failing, let's fix it, right? So the relationship piece wasn't there, which is certainly tied to the accountability part that we were just talking about. Um, But I think that if the capitalist incentive goes away, you know, there's opportunities for different incentives. Um, You know, looking at, I think we maybe talked about this um, in another conversation, but, you know, looking at Uh, a big piece of this, which is actual internet access and service, Mm -hmm. you know, um, where there's, we don't need to name them and give them extra credit. Um, But, you know, there are a few giant companies that are the main providers of the internet in any specific geography that Mm -hmm. you might be in. Um, And then there are geographies that have no internet service provider because they don't want to spend the money to lay the cable to make it out to those houses or farms or regions or whatever. And um, there's an instance where capitalism isn't, you know, it's working. It's saying there's no mar- there's not a big enough market, so don't spend the money. But because of that, we can create different opportunities. Those communities not only can create their own networks, they profit and benefit from them themselves. They can have different financial models that are co-ops or member, you know, there's, there's so much opportunity in that. And we do see communities pursuing that, Mm -hmm. um, which is really exciting. And I think a a proof of concept that could inspire a lot of other community approaches, because that, if you can sell something that includes like actual physical construction and supplies, well, surely we could do that too, when Mm. it's software or, or other services. Yeah. So um, 
I'm going to pick up one point that you brought up, brought in earlier, which was technology companies, if they want to provide technology to people who are working in the nonprofit sector, that they should try to factor in yeah. what the needs are of the sector, yeah. what are the kind of things that they want to do. So if one looks around in that bubble, there is an increasing bouquet of products mm-hmm. coming out that's being well, know, tagged very as... Very specific. Yes. Yeah, but... Fundraising tools and data Exactly, management. exactly. Yeah. So The uh, bouquets are carefully selected. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a matter of choice. Um, so... Do you think that they're actually factoring in the concerns that people like you and your peers are bringing into the table? Or is it, again, equity washing, you know? I mean, I think if I had, like, an actual grant to Enten for every time I got an email that said, oh, I'm a startup founder, I've done all of these things, and we've got the best new app for nonprofits to fundraise, N10 would be sustainable, you know, forever. We Mm. would have so many grants um, because we get that easily once a month. You know, Mm -hmm. someone says, oh, we've got this. And half of them are tools that no one would use. You know, the, the like every time you go to Starbucks, you can round up and donate to a nonprofit. Who is going to Starbucks and opening their phone and saying, let me know how much I just paid for that because I'd like to round <laughs> up to a nonprofit. Like these, uh, they're not rooted in the realities of everyday people or, you know, that would be wor- receiving support or donating or any have any other relationship to a nonprofit, nor are they rooted in the everyday realities of nonprofit staff and, and what technology needs they have. Mm. Um, I think some of the most prominent technologies in the nonprofit sector are obviously tools that weren't purpose-built for for us, but have also been told to us like, well, you know, the for-profit company loves these tools, so shouldn't you just want to use them as they are? They're already clearly, you know, very important. So I think that there's a piece of this that isn't, they don't even care to do the greenwashing or the Mm. nonprofit washing because... They just feel so completely solid in being a great for-profit tool that why wouldn't you just want it, Mm. you know? Mm. And I think because of that, we see oftentimes a lack of even wanting to create the, the the path for customization, mm. right? Because like, why why would we why would you need to customize this? Like, it's already great. I would rather develop a new app, right? <laughs> <laughs> so the last part of my question before I hand it over. <laughs> um, so you know, like when, when she says that she always has three questions, right? Question. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's my trick. <laughs> no, so um, at the beginning of the podcast, you mentioned that uh, internet or technology is all about people, and and people are the ones who kind of feed yeah. into the system, and that's how it kind of evolves but now we have this big monster in the room which is the ai and now we um, have the garbage machine that knows how to make its own garbage exactly (laughs) so it can it can probably because it's self-learning it could probably also have its benefits but i being a very i have very reserved views on that so i am a little pessimistic that it Mm -hmm. may kind of help uh drive the wedge even deeper in terms Mm -hmm. of inequality so Mm -hmm. i was just wondering if you had any thoughts on how the evolution of AI is going to potentially impact the work that you are trying to do, which is already an uphill battle. Yeah. And then, you know, it's kind of just exasperating 
uh, to, yeah. to do that so very quickly. Yes. I mean, I think that it's important for organizations, you know, I think they read the newspaper or, or, you know, like anyone else and see all this news coverage and think, oh, my gosh, like how many articles are out there about, you know, how everybody should start using these tools or the how the workforce is going to be like it's inevitable that you're having these questions or concerns like I'm not saying you shouldn't be reading the news like maybe we should talk about what the news is covering and how they're covering it and who that serves. But I really think the important thing to remember is that actually these technologies, the underlying technologies are not new. They've been the same machine learning, Mm -hmm. you know, tools for 30 years, for 20 years at least. It's just the thing that's different is that now the, the, the garbage can is filled with data. So they were finally able to do something, you know, they didn't have data 20 years ago that could feed in at, at the scale needed um, to these machine learning models to do anything. Now we spent 20 years filling the internet with hate speech and garbage. And so <laughs> now, who you know, they, they have something to work with. <laughs> and so that's one thing, you know, for context to keep in mind, if, if we don't think, oh my gosh, these are new and shiny, we think these have always been here we release ourselves from the urgency that this is something we have to adopt right now, right, Um, engage with, we also then can say, okay, well, if the tool isn't new, what is new? Okay, it's that now there's a bunch of data. It's that this is another thing that, that the technology sector can be using and playing with to see how do we react? What do we let slide? What are we okay with? Mm. What else could be built on top of this, you know? And that's where I think it's very important for organizations to be thoughtful and vocal, you Mm -hmm. know, saying we value humans giving advice to people who call in or chat in, you know, to our organization because no machine can replace an actual psychologist you know, on a on a suicide line or something, mm. right? And and the more we put those values out and put out our own guidelines that are proactively creating safety um, and and priorities for our community, the clearer then we're making that statement of like, no, you're not building on top of mm. this for us. You are not replacing these important parts of what our work is with a chatbot. Mm. You know. Mm. Interesting. Uh, I, I'm still thinking about this. Uh, you know, the 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 garbage, uh, yeah. uh, the, the, the garbage that we created that feeds now the. Uh, the yes. Because you know, there's always food waste. So in this, uh, yeah, in this garbage, yes, there might be. Yes, but it's not a composter uh, that's like <laughs> taking the garbage and and giving us good soil for our garden. It's just creating more garbage back yeah. to us. You yeah. know. I have to think about this. Episode. <laughs> Is that right. a perfect metaphor? Yes. Um, so well, I have another question on, uh, you mentioned a lot, uh, and also just now on, on the questions with Pradnya, the uh, the lack of inclusion of certain communities mm-hmm. um, and, and the, the lack of kind of, you know, hearing voices of certain mm-hmm. communities. And, and it made me think of, so in the climate change debate, there's now a growing consensus that indigenous voices have been overlooked for far too long. And we mm-hmm. can learn a lot from indigenous perspectives on ecosystems and climate change mm-hmm. because uh, they had uh, a certain experience in looking more holistically on the environment and the human's role mm-hmm. in it. Mm-hmm. 
And so, maybe not voices that have been overlooked, but have been systemically and intentionally excluded. Mm. I know, overlooked, yeah, exactly. Yes. So overlooked <laughs> overlook was my kind way of saying yes. it. Yes, you, you could be right. They have been exterminated or excluded. <laughs> oh, or right. yeah, completely right. Um, so I wonder if on the technology aspect that we're yeah. discussing, so is there something like an indigenous perspective on technology yes. in Kodeshman? Yes, definitely. And what would that be? Like, What, what, what is missing there? What do mm -hmm. we have to look at more? Yeah, I think there are... Um, Of course, indigenous perspectives on technology, there are, you know, long, lo long history of indigenous people creating technologies and living their lives uh, unencumbered until they became completely attacked. Um, but I think some of the places where I have found a lot of um, inspiration and uh, ways of thinking about this, this work in general is, is especially the the level of n navigating within concepts of what does being sovereign mean hmm. because within that we think differently about you know it's not data privacy or data protection if we're saying data sovereignty that is inherently powerful versus data protection, which is mostly inherently paternalistic, mm. right? And so even just the point of entry to the conversations that, you know, are, are being led by Indigenous um, communities and thinkers and users of technology, I think then take you down a different path, right? And, and one that for me, you know, is very close to the work that I have always done, which is technology for community, for community power building, community com conversation and connection, for community change making, and um, rooting that technology as, as having a place because the community needs it or wants it or built it or, you know, is putting it to use is very different than saying this technology exists because Meta built it and sold it to us. This is also coming <laughs> you know? up during Kamal's conversations yes. when they're talking about conserving an entire cultural ecosystem for a country that's doomed, in right. a sense, and they have to preserve it in a digital space. Mm -hmm. But who should have the sovereignty of that technology? Who, who right. should develop that and who should be the gatekeepers of that technology? Right. Because it's their cultural heritage that needs to be preserved. Right. And even so, as the place that we started this conversation today, you know, that that the internet has just been a place where we recreate the systems that we have offline, thinking about the, um, like the people of Tuvalu trying to preserve and, and, and migrate in a way into a digital space, um, what does that mean for not recreating things online that exist offline, right? Saying that, um, somehow sovereignty is because there is a geographic land uh, that you are referring to. And, and I, again, back to indigenous ways of thinking, there's also, you know, opportunities to say, I am a member of multiple sovereign groups at hmm. once, right? And I should be able to navigate the online world just as I navigate the offline world, knowing that, you know, I might have a passport from a certain country that I, you know, was born in, and then I live in another country, I don't give up either of those mm. rights, mm. right? I have identities that I do not 
have to, well, should not have to, you know, give up rights for. It's not and, a identity. Right. And and each of us are interacting with our own Venn diagram of sovereignties, mm. of rights, of identities. And I think a lot of our internet systems are not actually advanced enough to hold the complexity of who we are as individuals because the offline world is very much struggling to, to be able to hold the complexity of who we mm. are as individuals, mm -hmm. right? And so I am deeply invested in and concerned for how we support, you know, Tuvalu having the path towards not just preservation, but, but digital sovereignty. Yeah. And, and how can we do that when there are so many other examples of us not being able to honor that, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And for our uh, listeners who wonder why we talk about Tuvalu, <laughs> uh, go back to a previous episode of the podcast with Kamal Amakrana and you will know. And, yes. And, and, so yes. And I think, <laughs> I think that report came out yesterday that yeah. this is not a matter of decades. This mm. is a matter of days. Mm. You know, we, this, is, this is deeply important right now work that we have to do. Yeah. Although uh, I would have many more questions, I'm looking at the time. Uh, we have to come to a close towards the towards the end of our conversation, and we always have at the end two questions we're asking okay. every fellow. Um, and, and the one uh, has to do with uh, Berlin and Germany, because the idea of the academy is, among other things, uh, for the fellows uh, to kind of have a uh, an impression of uh, of Berlin and Germany. And you are here now for six weeks ish. Four. For oh, it feels like six. <laughs> 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 uh, four weeks. So, what is your so that's even more interesting. That is, uh, what, what is your fresh impression? Like, what was a highlight you mm. had uh, in those first couple of weeks, uh, and maybe also disappointment? Um, oh. Because I think you have not known Germany very well before, so right. it's really fresh. Um, yeah, yeah. Great question. Um, I think my highlight so far has been how many people I have met like intentionally, you know, people I wanted to have meetings with, but also just people, you know, you talk to in the grocery store or whatever that are not, that weren't born in Berlin. Mm. Um, because when I've lived in places where people have, whether by choice or by circumstance, found themselves in a location and, a, and so many of those people weren't born there, you, it's, it's just a, spicier, more flavorful curry, you know? It's like so many more perspectives and it forces, I think, a level of curiosity and learning because you show up at the conversation and somebody doesn't have the same assumptions as you. They don't have the same background and experiences. And so I've really loved um, that Berlin has been a place like that, um, that I've experienced in other places in the world where just you know, you could overhear four different languages being spoken on the street or, you know, I, I really enjoy that. And I think a disappointment, I don't know that I have too many yet. Um, you know, I, I am. A negative surprise. I'm dis and, yeah. yeah. I mean, a negative surprise. That's a really great way to frame <laughs> it is I have been, it's hard to walk around Berlin and not see the way that there's been investments in not forgetting The, mm -hmm. you know, the remembrance the, the, culture, the last 100 years 
um, of choices, but it has been a negative surprise that that remembrance culture is of the last 100 years. And, and while I hear like, you know, from the Humboldt Forum or whoever, like, oh, yes, we're really grappling with decolonization. I am looking forward to seeing that you are, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, like that's been that's been really interesting because like, w well, of course, there's many issues with it. And it is, as I'm sure you have seen in the news, like America's history is so contentiously debated within America. It is still known in my experience and people aren't saying like what what is it that we're debating you know like um and so that's been really I think helpful in conversations to say we're actually talking about the entirety of the story you know so that's yeah that's my answer for now yeah we, we had yesterday a great conversation uh with some external speakers on on exactly that like the mm. colonial past and what i took with me as a as a lesson and you you're touching on this is that the terms post-colonialism or colonial past in themselves are already insulting or wrong you know right. it's, a, it's a colonial present because as you right. rightly say it's still there yeah. yeah i mean once we get to a place where how, how do i say this we we will not be out have a past of colonialism until we have achieved an equitable world. Mm. And there's not an in-between, like, post-colonial mm. pre-equity. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. what, what one begins because the other has finally been dismantled and confronted. But and as a former philosophy student, I know you can just define it like postmodernism. Yeah. You know, just define <laughs> right. now it's postmodern. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It'll be like generations. We just create a name every exactly. 20 exactly. years and, yeah. Uh, but connecting to something, too, that... Um, Henry was asking you about your Berlin stay. Um, I can't help but wonder, because from where I come from, uh, issues of data privacy and everything is like, well, you know, it's 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 a matter of privilege if you want to engage on that. Yeah. But you happen to be in Germany, which is considered by the outside world as one of, you know, like the, the places that is flag-bearing in mm -hmm. terms of data privacy regulations. So what is your actual thought on that? On do you actually on see it Germany or uh, do you actually see them in the role that they're perceived to be? Well, as many people have um, said in our group conversations and and my one on one meetings, Germany is very good at making rules. <laughs> We love our bureaucracy. Uh -huh. <laughs> So I think for me... Ordnung muss sein. It's a German <laughs> sentence you have, to, you have to learn. Okay. Order is necessary. Yes. So <laughs> I see lots of evidence of that, you know, mm. that there has been um, lots of rules uh, or policies or regulations. I think when the focus is the policy or the regulation, and again, the focus isn't community power and accountability, you create the thing that you set out to create. You have policies, mm -hmm. you know, you have bureaucracy, you have regulations. But I don't talk to organizations here or, you know, um, individual people who feel like they have power or they have paths for accountability, right? Um, and, and I also don't see in a lot of those regulations many proactive examples of policy making. I see them being, you know, something happened and so we've created a policy 
in response, right? And I think that we can't do that because then we create policies based on whatever technology companies develop. And instead, we should be able to say proactively, this is what sovereignty means. This is what rights and protections online mean. And and no matter what you build, it should have these components or, you know. And the company should then right. deliver on that. Right. Yeah. Okay. So the last question, <laughs> uh, we always ask our fellows or, or our guests uh, about what inspires them apart from the work that they do. Mm. It can be a piece of book. It can be some piece of art you came across or just walking around Berlin, you know, just yeah. a structure that kind of strikes you, which is inspiring for you. Yeah. So something on that. Hmm. What inspires me? I mean, I think that the place I draw hope from how many other things we as people and communities are interested and successfully building together. You know, when when COVID started, the number of, you know, real to an individual person uh, supports and solutions that they could access were not from governments, right? They were no, from, from neighborhood groups that created a free free pantry or that, you know, like we really do have everything we need to make the world different. We are just impacted very systemically to feel distracted by not having access to a doctor or having food for groceries or, you know, like all these other things are there, but knowing that we could address those because we actually are capable, we are capable and we are powerful and we like, we know enough and we have enough to do it. I think when I remember that, I'm like, oh, let's go, like, let's go take it down right now, you know? So, and, and there's so many examples of that that you just come across every day, you know, somebody helping somebody across the street. You're like, yes, mm. let's go. Mm. We didn't need to wait in line for a service to get across the street. We helped each other. Like, like let's small, go. Small acts of kindness. <laughs> yeah. 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 Thank you so much, Amy, for sharing yeah. your thoughts Thanks with us today. Thanks for having me all the way in Berlin just for this podcast. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, we could have done that as well, yeah. <laughs> just saying. Um, but uh, anyway, thank you so much. And we'll be back next month with our next episode with Kate Crawford. And we'll pick up on some threads um, that were discussed today, uh, specifically artificial Technology intelligence <laughs> and the social implications of it. Um, so, um, yeah, stay tuned for our next podcast. And thank you to everyone who's tuned in. You will find the details about the references that came up during the conversation at the end of this episode description. Please subscribe to our channels on all the platforms and tell your friends about us. Amy, you too. I will. <laughs> and if you have any comments or questions, please feel free to drop us a line at contact at robertboschacademy.de. Thank you so much. Thank you, Amy. Thanks. Think. Debate. Inspire. A podcast of the Robert Bosch Academy, presenting inspiring ideas to address major challenges of our time. Subscribe to our podcast on all platforms.